0: Welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Acheson. In today's episode, the second of our three-episode series on syphilis, we'll discuss the signs and symptoms of syphilis infection. We'll also be discussing the process of staging or determining how long a patient has been infected with syphilis, which is important as that affects what kind of treatment the patient will receive. For those who have turned into our first podcast, we are once again joined by Dr. Ina Park. For new listeners, Dr. Park is an Associate Professor of Family Planning and Community Medicine at the University of California San Francisco School of Medicine, is Medical Director of the California Prevention Training Center, and is a medical consultant with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where she was one of the co-authors of the forthcoming 2020 CDC STD Treatment Guidelines. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Park.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. This is such an important topic. And as we discussed in the first podcast in this series, syphilis is something many of your listeners have been seeing more often or will be seeing more often.
0: So let's get started by discussing what happens when someone first becomes infected with syphilis.
1: Well, so syphilis is caused by a bacterium called trepanema pallidum. It's a little spiral-shaped bacteria referred to as spirochete. And so during sexual contact, which you know could be oral sex, vaginal sex, or anal sex, it first works its way into the skin through a little microscopic tear in the tissue that would happen you know, during any kind of sexual activity. And then it starts to multiply at the point where it enters, and it enters the lymph system and the bloodstream. And so then within a few days of being infected, trepanema pallidum might actually be able to scatter all the way throughout the body. And then it can be found in almost any organ. So it can be in the genitals, it can actually go up to the eyes and into the central nervous system and everything in between.
0: How long does this process take exactly? And how will it first appear on the body?
1: So syphilis can have a very long incubation period. So anywhere from 10 days to actually three months after having sex, a painless ulcer, which we call a shanker, is going to appear. And that signals the primary stage of the infection. And so usually the chancre is on the genitals. But the issue is it can happen really anywhere on the body where the sexual contact occurred. So um, it can happen on the genitals. It can be inside the vagina, the mouth or the rectum where it can easily go unnoticed. But if you do notice it, then it's sort of moist in the center and firm around the outside, sort of like the cartilage on the end of your nose. And so I'd like to point out something here because while the painless single ulcer is kind of the classic presentation for primary syphilis, you know, the issue is it's Certainly possible for patients to present with multiple ulcers. And even some reports in the scientific literature of patients coming with multiple painful ulcers, that's really not what we think about for syphilis. And so when someone presents like that, it's really easy for a clinician to mistake it for something like herpes rather than syphilis. And so I think if you see an ulcer, whether it's a genital ulcer, anal ulcer, or even oral ulcer, ordering testing for syphilis is really important. And even if you're looking at something and you're saying, I really think this is herpes, you should still order testing for syphilis just in case to cover your bases.
0: That makes a lot of sense, especially considering the rising rates of syphilis today. What type of testing would you order in order to confirm a diagnosis?
1: Well, in the ideal world, you'd be able to get a test directly to detect the Treponema pallidum bacteria from an ulcer, and that's called a darkfield microscope test, but almost no one has this type of testing available anymore. And so a few clinicians out there might actually have a lab that offers you like a PCR, like a swab test, which you could perform on a swab of the lesion. And again, most people won't have this. So most clinicians listening out there are going to have to order like a serologic antibody test with a blood specimen.
0: And since knowing which blood tests to order as well as how to interpret them and what to do for follow-up is another big topic itself, we'll be covering that in our third and final podcast in our syphilis series, which is addressing testing and treatment. So coming back to primary syphilis, you mentioned that many times patients have a painless ulcer, or sore. And that ulcer could go unnoticed because it happens inside the genitals, the rectum, or the mouth. Let's say a patient had that situation and either didn't realize that anything was going on, or maybe they did see something and didn't seek
1: care right away for whatever reason. What would happen next? Well, I've always said that syphilis is one of those infections that just thrives on people's denial. So if a patient just didn't realize they had a shanker, or sometimes they see it and then they like convince themselves that it's something else. The shanker just goes away on its own and it disappears. And then at that point, the patient might feel relieved and say, oh great, that was nothing. And they wouldn't have any symptoms at this point. So meanwhile, trepanema pallidum is still sort of quietly multiplying all over the body. So the patient
0: is still infected mm-hmm. and we would expect the symptoms to occur again. When would that happen and what signs or symptoms might a patient have at that point?
1: So if it's not caught and treated at the primary stage, which as we mentioned, can easily happen, then about six weeks to six months after having sex, then you get the uh, manifestations of the secondary stage. So in the classic scenario, a rash would erupt on the torso and then would eventually spread to the hands and feet. And sometimes it also appears in the genitals. And there might be just two spots for this rash or 200 spots. And usually it's not painful or itchy, but here's the tricky part. It can look like anything from tinea to varicella to pityriasis rosea to psoriasis, or many other skin conditions. So this is one of those reasons that syphilis was historically known as the great imitator because it really can look like so many different conditions. And for those clinicians out there who are also doing primary care, syphilis is really not necessarily the front of people's minds when someone walks in with a rash. So I would really encourage your listeners to think about syphilis for any patient presenting with a rash who is sexually active. And luckily, antibody testing should almost always be positive at this stage of the infection.
0: At this point of the infection, could a patient have other physical signs or symptoms of secondary syphilis besides that rash? And if so, what might they be?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes they can be subtle, but actually most people with secondary syphilis actually experience either muscle aches, fatigue, a headache, but those can easily be mistaken for a viral illness. Or some patients will say, oh, I'm like really stressed out or I'm overworked. And again, you know, just embodying the sort of great imitator, the nickname that we've been giving to syphilis. And then there's some rare signs that can happen for secondary syphilis, like patchy alopecia. So that's patchy hair loss on the scalp. Um, They can get white patches in the mouth, which are called mucus patches or warty growths on the genitals, which are called condylomalata, but they actually can look like garden variety warts. They're actually caused by syphilis. And those might also clue a clinician into the diagnosis. So
0: if a sexually active patient comes in and has a rash on the hands and feet or all over their torso, along with other symptoms, maybe like fatigue or achiness, it seems like syphilis might be the obvious diagnosis or at least something the clinician would consider. Are most people detected during this stage?
1: Well, you would think... So, and I think lots of people are, but it's actually possible to miss the diagnosis at this stage too, because sometimes the rash can be really subtle. So, I was going to tell you a story about a patient of mine who I'm going to call Daniel, who was a 28 year old man who had sex with men. He came into our STD clinic in San Francisco, and the, his primary complaint was just that he felt fatigue and he was having some muscle aches, and he felt like actually his lymph nodes were swollen. So, he was really concerned about having acute HIV because he had read about that online and so he had thought he had contracted HIV from his last sex partner. So I ended up examining Daniel and he did have swollen lymph nodes. He had some near his elbow and also in his groin in the inguinal region. But actually the skin on his hands and his feet and his torso were completely clear. So I looked at his genital area and he had two very small little pink spots on his scrotum. And he we did a stat RPR test for syphilis in our clinic. Um, you know, so we have that results in like, you know, 20 minutes or so, and that was positive. And so he had secondary syphilis, but my point is that the rash was so subtle and it was only confirmed find the genital region and that I would have missed the diagnosis if I had not looked at his genitals. And if there had been a rash on his torso or on his hands or feet, it certainly wasn't there at the time that he presented to me. So his rash was found because he happened to walk into our STD clinic and we always do a thorough skin exam. But I think if someone walks into an urgent care clinic and says, I'm tired and I have a headache, people don't say, well, let me look at your scrotum. You know what I mean? It's not really the first place a doctor thinks to look.
0: So it sounds like clinicians in the family planning setting should have a pretty high index of suspicion for syphilis whenever they see a rash and that sometimes they must look very, very carefully to detect it.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I really wish we could show pictures on this podcast, but we can't. So I encourage your listeners to just get online and just look at pictures of rashes. You know, if you Google secondary syphilis and rashes, just take a look at all the different ways it can manifest. And then also look at some of the less common findings, like the patchy alopecia or hair loss, the mucus patches and the condyloma lata, just to get familiar with what they look like.
0: So if a patient isn't diagnosed at either the primary or the secondary stages of syphilis, what happens next? They're still considered infected at this point, correct?
1: Yeah, for sure. And if they ignore their symptoms or let's say that it was you know super subtle and it escaped everyone's notice then the signs of secondary syphilis also disappear so then you enter this latent stage with no symptoms and if you happen to catch somebody because they're coming in for regular screening and you catch them with this asymptomatic syphilis in that within a year of being infected we would call this early latent syphilis but latent syphilis can go on for much longer than that so after a year The patient enters what we call late latent syphilis, and that stage can last for decades. So everything looks all quiet on the body surface. The patient's physical exam is totally normal, but inside the organs, the Treponema pallidum bacteria is still multiplying, but it's just more slowly. And so, the only way to detect syphilis at this latent stage is doing that antibody testing that we talked about earlier.
0: So let's imagine a patient becomes infected with syphilis, but it's not detected for many years. What's the worst case scenario that could happen?
1: So the worst case scenario, like if you leave it completely unchecked, then it may progress to a tertiary stage and then we start getting destructive tumors of the skin and bones that's called gummatous syphilis. It can actually affect the walls and vessels of the heart, so it can cause aneurysms, you know, those can burst and lead to sudden death. So before the advent of modern antibiotic therapy, about a third to a half of patients with untreated syphilis would get these complications of late disease, but today they're very rare. You know, in our earlier podcast, we talked about syphilis in the central nervous. System um, more extensively. And so I will say, though, that parts of the central nervous system, including the cerebral spinal fluid, the CSF, the eyes or the ears, can actually be affected simultaneously with any of their stages of syphilis. Even at that very early primary stage, you can have CNS manifestations. But, you know, in that worst case scenario that you had brought up, when the central nervous system is infected at the tertiary stage, that can lead to, you know, progressive paralysis, blindness, and deafness, and can actually even, you know, cause insanity. And just as an aside, you know, many historians suspect that tertiary syphilis was at the root of Vincent van Gogh's sort of wild technicolor visions and Al Capone and his murderous rages and Adolf Hitler and his behavior. So even if these folks have been able to receive antibiotic treatment, once your central nervous system is damaged by tertiary syphilis, you just can't reverse the damage that's already been done.
0: Given how easy- it is to miss syphilis during the other stages, I'm surprised that complications don't develop more often.
1: So in the pre-antibiotic era, we know that about a third of patients with untreated syphilis developed complications, and that means two-thirds didn't, right? So patients' immune systems actually can eradicate this infection or hold it at bay so that these late complications never develop. And then, as you know today, Catherine, like patients are likely to receive antibiotics that might actually have activity against syphilis. So, for example, a patient might get penicillin for strep throat or strep pharyngitis. They might get cephalosporins for cellulitis or UTI, or doxycycline for a respiratory infection or for acne. They might get azithromycin for chlamydia or respiratory infection. So, I've had Lots of consults for patients in their 70s or 80s who have some sort of positive reactive serology test for syphilis, and they never realized that they'd ever been infected, and they've received a lot of antibiotics in their life, and they that actually may have eradicated the syphilis, you know, um, even though that, that wasn't the intention. And so typically, these patients would be staged as having late latent disease and they would get treatment. But if they haven't developed complications by that age, it's not likely that they're going to do so in the future.
0: Well, that's all very interesting to note, especially since syphilis is on the rise. However, the infection is not nearly as common as other STDs such as gonorrhea or chlamydia. So some family planning clinicians may never have seen a case of syphilis.
1: What advice do you
0: have for family planning clinicians as they go back to their practice settings after this podcast?
1: So I would say just have a very low threshold or index of suspicion for ordering syphilis tests in your sexually active patients. Just to start off, any patient with a genital ulcer should be tested for syphilis, even if you think it's herpes. Any patient with a new rash, wherever it is, test them for syphilis, even if it's not in the classic distribution of the palms and Souls, patients with a red eye, visual loss, hearing loss, tinnitus, they should definitely be tested. And if someone presents with fatigue and swollen lymph nodes, you know, definitely think about HIV, but also test for syphilis. So I just say syphilis needs to be at the front of the clinician's minds as a possibility because you cannot rely on the classic physical signs that you see in textbooks. And so it's really nice when people come in with a textbook case, but it just often doesn't present that way. And then, of course, um, there's going to be patients that we should be screening for syphilis regardless of symptoms. And we'll be talking about that more in depth in our next episode.
0: And where might our listeners go if they want more information on syphilis staging, especially those pictures of signs and symptoms so they can better recognize cases in their own practice?
1: So I like the University of Washington's um, curriculum. They were funded by CDC to create curriculum online. It has great information and some pictures, and they're working on adding more photos right now to their curriculum. And so that is at www.std.uw.
0: Well, we've discussed a lot of information about syphilis today. So before we say goodbye, Dr. Park, would you be so kind as to give us a quick summary for the road as it were?
1: Just remember, primary syphilis is your first stage, and that's characterized usually by a painless ulcer, followed by secondary syphilis, which is usually characterized by some sort of rash as well as constitutional symptoms. And then if someone is asymptomatic and they happen to have a positive antibody test and a positive confirmatory test, then they would have latent syphilis. And it's up to the clinician to figure out whether that's early latent syphilis or late latent syphilis. So to figure that out, if the patient's last negative syphilis test was less than a year ago, or they definitely had sexual contact with a partner with primary, secondary, or early latent syphilis, or they had symptoms of primary or secondary syphilis that went away, then they would have early latent syphilis. And there's going to be some caveats to that, which we discuss in the next episode of the podcast. But if someone's never been tested for syphilis in the past, which happens a lot, or their last syphilis test was more than a year ago, and it's just unclear when they might have gotten exposed, then we just classify those people as having late latent syphilis. Well,
0: thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Park, and for sharing your time and expertise. We look forward to having you on again for our third and final episode in our Syphilis podcast series, where we'll be discussing testing and treatment. For more content, including our first Syphilis podcast, search for the Family Planning Files podcast or subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. This podcast is supported by award number 5, FPTPA006029-02-00 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the presenters and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS, OASH, or OPA. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of the Family Planning Files.